Second Samuel chapter 23. You know, I often think about what the Apostle Paul said at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy is Paul's last letter that he had written. And I'll just read this to you. I think about this quite a bit. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 7. Paul wrote to Timothy. And again, he wrote this at the end of his life. Tells us what he was thinking. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me also, or to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing, meaning looking forward to his appearing, waiting for him to to arrive. Paul expresses here a confidence that um, has always struck me. I mean, the words he says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course, meaning the race. He says, I've kept the faith. And he's confident. He says, there's a treasure that's been stored up for me, the crown of righteousness which the Lord has awarded or will award to me on that day. And the reason I reflect on that often is because it makes me think about my own walk with Christ. And I wonder if I have that kind of confidence that Paul does. You know, we, we have a lot of roles, a lot of hats that we wear as men and women. You know, a dad, you know, I'm an employee, um, pastor of a church, small church, you know, and there's all these different hats. And we have a tendency to evaluate ourselves in those things. You know, am I a good employee? Am I good? You know, I do IT work for a living. And I always tease my employees because I've been doing it for 20 some odd years. And I've got a great relationship with most of my employees. And it's just because of the way I care for them. And so I know I'm good at that job. And so when they send me little notes here and there, I'll usually respond back, well, thank you, yes, I'm, I'm an IT genius or something. like. And I play with them a little bit, you know. And that's the, some boasting, a little playful boasting and stuff. But I seriously sit back and I wonder sometimes, am I really um, as good an employee as I could be? Or, um, you know, a father. Am I really as good a father as I could be? You know, I know where my own failings are. Well, especially then when it comes to my relationship with Christ, and I look at what Paul says here, and I'm like, man, this guy had a tremendous amount of confidence as he's about ready to face the Lord. He knew his life was coming to an end soon. And so what does it take to have that kind of assurance or that kind of confidence? You know, I think all of us in this room that know Christ would love to be able to, to know that as we face him, what we're going to hear is, well done, good and faithful servant, rather than, hmm, yeah, you're, you're, you're in, but, so what does it take to have that kind of confidence? Um, we're going to look at a passage today. Um, as, I, as, I, as we've gone through this last section here, David had two psalms that he wrote. And we looked at one last week, and now we, we look at um, what appears to be his last psalm that he, he had written. And it's really, it's a psalm, it's referred to as what's called a royal psalm because it deals with his, his role as a king, but it's also a psalm of confidence and assurance. And we're going we're gonna to see that today as we, go, as we go through this. Now, when you look at this psalm, there's really two ways that it's generally interpreted. It's either David's last words that he ever uttered, or just the last psalm that he wrote. And there's debate as to what that is, and it's because of the way that the, way that the psalm actually starts. And so the question is, was this the very last thing David said? Did he say, the, did he say this with his dying breaths as he's laying on his, in his bed and you know, it ends with the last word he said there? Or is this just sort of his, the last thing that he wrote, the last thing that he was uh, given divinely? I, I don't know that we have to argue and debate that. It's, it's debated. I don't know why we just can't assume both are probably true, that this likely maybe is the last thing that David said. We know... You know, he had some last words to, to Solomon, his son. Those are recorded in First Kings. And this may very well have been something that David dictated shortly after that. And you'll see that as we, as we look at this today. The passage can actually be broken down into two parts. There's this introductory statement by the author of Second Samuel that introduces then David's words. And so we're going to see the author say, say something about David and introduce the psalm. And then we're going to actually see David's words in the psalm. So those are the two parts. There's a couple of things that, that happen in here. David's going to reveal that the Lord spoke to him. He's going to repeat the words that the Lord actually spoke. And then he's going to relate how those words specifically apply to David. So that's kind of the general feel of the psalm. 
when we look at it today, I'm going to break it down into three sections that sort of parallel those in some. So here's your outline for today. We have David's divine appointment as king in the first verse. Then we have David's divine calling as king in the next couple of verses. And then we're going to have David's divine proof as king. And you'll see how those are going to relate here. So let's look at David's divine appointment as king. And this is all going to relate to David's assurance and confidence. It's actually what lies behind the reason why we're going to see David's assurance and confidence in here. It, it lines up with these three things. His, his assurance and his confidence is because of those three things. His divine appointment as king, his divine calling as king, and his divine proof as king. So let's look at just verse 1 of chapter 23. Now these are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, declares, the man who was raised on high declares, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. Now those are the the introductory words by by the author who wrote 2 Samuel. So that's his introduction to what he's about now to um, have David relate to us. And look at, look at a couple of things here. Twice he refers to David's words here as an oracle. Now you might not see that in the New American Standard Version here. Um, a couple of your versions actually will use the word oracle. And that's the word that the, the author uses here. And an oracle was actually a divine utterance. It specifically in the scriptures relates to something that is said because God gave it to the individual to say. It's a form of divine inspiration. And so twice, what the psalm or what the author does here is he said, "What we're going to share with you now, what I'm going to give to you now, is an oracle, a divine utterance that David actually either said or wrote. It's something that he had received from the Lord." As the author introduces David here, he does some interesting things. He actually uses three specific designations for David. And I love these designations. The first one is that he refers to David as the son of Jesse. Why is that important? Well, when Jacob, who is also called Israel, was on his deathbed, he gave this prophecy. It's actually found in Genesis chapter 49. Why don't you turn there with me? Genesis 49. They jump down to verses 8 through 10. As Jacob is reciting this to his sons on his deathbed, he says, verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are are dull from wine and his teeth white from pure milk. That's actually a a messianic prophecy. It's Shiloh, there's a reference to the Messiah, reference to the Christ. And so what Israel actually does here on his deathbed is he designates that the king, ultimately the Messiah, would come through the line of Judah. Jesse was actually a direct descendant of Judah. And so for the author here to tell us that David is the son of Jesse, what he basically tells us is that David is going to be, or David was the king appointed by God. It was part of God's plan and purpose for David, a son of Jesse, a descendant of Judah, to be the king. And so there's the first thing we see regarding David's, excuse me, David's appointment as king, his divine appointment. Notice too in verse, or chapter 23 verse 1 there, he refers to David as the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob. Again, we have this direct reference to God's divine appointment as, as king. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, we read this, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? You remember that story where Saul basically is a horrible king. He was given every opportunity by God to do the right thing and chose not to. And so then God basically says he's going to yank that away from Saul and give it to another who would be a man after his own heart, which was a designation designation for David. And so he does just that. He basically yanks his, his favor from Saul. And because of that, Samuel's now a little bit bummed out. He's a little depressed. And so the Lord says to him, How long are you going to grieve over Saul? 
Since I've rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse of the Bethlehemites, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. Again, a designation of David and his divine appointment as king. Second Samuel chapter 12, David actually is reminded by the Lord himself. He says, it is I who anointed you king over Israel. It's I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. And so God himself told David, I've divinely appointed you as king. As we look at the New Testament, we see how that ultimately applies to Jesus Christ. Turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 30. And this is something we'll see in the psalm as well. Remember, David is a type of Christ in the Old Testament, which means he reflects the coming king, the coming Messiah. And so what, what applies to David actually applies to Christ. It's a foreshadowing. And so this divine appointment that we're seeing here of David is actually a foreshadowing of Christ being divinely appointed as God's king. In fact, one of the neat things about the book of Acts is um, it kind of starts right out of the gate with that. Right out of the gate. that um, Christ is God's appointed Messiah. And when Peter is first addressing the Jews in the beginning of Acts at Pentecost, he kind of reminds them. He's like, look, this was the Messiah. You killed him. And he spells out why. God appointed him. And he goes through, David said it would happen. God appointed him. And then this is what you did to him. And so what applies to David often applies to Christ as well. But Acts chapter 2, if you look at verse 30, and so he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. We see there that he's quoting Luke as he writes that. He's quoting from David about how God would seat a king on the throne of David because he was a descendant of Judah and therefore Jesse and that gave David his divine appointment as king but then Christ was ultimately in the lineage of David and that's his divine appointment as king as well now the last thing we see the psalmist do or I mean sorry the author here in verse 1 of chapter 23 is he refers to David as a sweet psalmist of Israel I love that phrase that identifies David as a prophet in fact, we know that David wrote over 80 of the Psalms. So this call to him being the sweet psalmist, that also foreshadows Jesus' role. John chapter 12 says, For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that this commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. That's Christ. And so, again, we see David being called the sweet psalmist as a reflection on how the Messiah also will be divinely speaking on behalf of God. And Jesus himself tells us that in John chapter 12. So what do we see in this first verse here? David's confidence and his assurance begins with his divine appointment as king. That's where it began. It wasn't something in and of himself. And the psalm or the author here points that out to us that David's role as king was specifically given to him. He was appointed to be the king. Now, what if I told you that our assurance and our confidence before Christ should be based on the same thing? Our divine appointment. Jesus told his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. That this fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. That's John chapter 15. Jesus told his disciples, you may think that you chose me, but I chose you. Now, we can get into the debate and the argument over God's sovereignty and his free will. The reality of it is both are true. You chose God, but God chose you. If you want to spend the next 24 hours debating that in your mind and trying to figure out how it all fits together, good luck. 
The best theologians in the world have never figured it out. It's a good thing to wrestle with. The best way that I've ever heard it explained, in terms of an analogy, is a man walking, a blind man, walking along a path. And I've met have shared this with you before. He's just walking along this path. He can't even see the doorway in front of him, but that's the doorway to salvation. So he's walking along and he's beating his cane along the wall and he's, he's kind of following it. You know, he really can't see where he's going because he's blind. But he's led somehow to this opening. And on the top of that archway, it says, Come all who are weary. And so he's going along and he walks through the door. All of a sudden, the scales fall off his eyes and now he can completely see everything. And as he turns around and looks at the top of the door that's now behind him, what he sees is not come all who are weary, but rather chosen before the foundation of the world. Same doorway. You can't see both sides at the same time, but both are true. It's the same door, right? That's kind of the way God's sovereignty and his free will works. Every individual has the choice, the free will to be able to choose to come to Christ. But the scriptures also make it very clear that those who have come to Christ... Chosen. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to read a chunk here. Probably one of the most encouraging passages of Scripture in the entire Bible, as far as I'm concerned. If you ever doubt whether God loves you or how He feels about you, this is where you should turn. Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 3. I'm going to read about 11 verses here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as, and here it is, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purchased in him with a view to the administration suitable for the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ in the heavens and on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of your inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Amen? That whole passage is about... Your appointment, my appointment by God as his child for the purpose of bearing fruit, receiving an inheritance, to the praise of his glory, for his pleasure, for his purpose, for his will. Those of us that know Jesus Christ have been divinely appointed in that relationship to him. And ultimately that is where our assurance and our confidence should begin. And what we learn in 2 Samuel chapter 23 is that's where David's confidence ultimately began. David knew that he was appointed because he could recite that. And so the author begins this as he leads into this psalm of David where he expresses his faith and his confidence and his assurance. Begins with his divine appointment. And ultimately that's where ours should begin as well. Look at verses 2 through 4. This is David's divine calling, and it's actually where David's words begin now. It's the words that were spoken to him. So David says in verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord spoke to me by his word, or I'm sorry, and his word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me, he who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun arises, a morning without clouds when the tender grass springs out of the earth through sunshine after a rain. So this is now the actual oracle, the divine inspiration by David. 
It's what the Lord actually declared to him. David begins by saying, the Lord spoke to me. He gave me this word. This is what the Lord said to me. And the Lord actually declared to him, in verses 3 and 4 here, something that David now recites to us. He basically says this. The premise is that the king who rules in a certain way would cause Israel to flourish and grow. That's the premise of this psalm. Now think about that for a minute. David was a king. That was his divine calling. He knew that. And he knew that in order to please the Lord, he would have to serve as the kind of king that the Lord needed him to be. And so basically what he's doing in this oracle now is he's saying, the Lord told me what kind of king I need to be. And now he tells us what kind of king that was. And he uses these these two... um, Rules, if you will. Okay, The first is that he would be the kind of king the Lord needed him to be if he ruled over men righteously, he says. The most basic meaning of this word righteousness means to conform to an ethical standard, a moral standard. We know that standard is the Lord. Many will claim to be righteous, but if it doesn't align with God's moral standards, it's not righteousness. I mean, think about what's happening in our world today. You know, we have, with this political climate we're in now, we have one side believing one thing's right, another side that's believing something else is right. You know, let's go to the most graphic example of abortion. We have one side claiming that the righteous thing to do is to prevent babies from being ripped out of a womb. We have the other, other side obviously believing that right is killing a baby in the womb. Only one side's right. Righteousness aligns with the Lord. He determines what's right. And so David says that in order for him to be the kind of king that God needs him to be, in order to to be able to stand before God with assurance and confidence that I'm that kind of king, he has to be able to rule righteously. Psalm chapter 145 says this, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and in all of his works. Notice the emphasis there on ways and works. The king was supposed to ultimately be God's representative of truth and justice. And built into that word righteousness actually is the concept of justice, doing the right thing. And as king, to rule righteously meant that he did just that. Because if you remember, one of the roles of David's as king was to sit in the gate and have people come to him and have him help resolve their issues. Remember, that's how his son stole that function and role from him. Kind of went out to the gate ahead, of, and before the people could get to David, he went out there and said, oh, David doesn't care about you. I'm here. Tell me what you th- and I'll help you. I'll, I'll figure out what's good and what's right for you. And so David knew that in order to be the kind of king the Lord wanted him to be, he needed to rule in righteousness, because the Lord told him that. Right here. The Spirit of the Lord spoke to me, verse 2, and his word was on my tongue, Verse 3, this is what the Lord said. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me, he who rules over men righteously, was what David was told by the Lord. The second thing that the Lord told him is the very next phrase, who rules in the fear of God. It's the second half of verse 3. And so the second premise here was that David needed to rule in the fear of God. The best definition of what it means to Fear of the Lord is actually found in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Why don't you turn there with me? Deuteronomy chapter 10. Jump down into verse 10 with me. Hold on a minute. That might be the wrong verse. Oh, it's actually the wrong citation. I think I'll do it from memory here if I can, but the um, concept of the fear of the Lord actually has to do with walking in His ways and loving Him. I'm looking at Sandy. Did you find the verse there? I see your eyes kind of twirling. Did you see the one? It might be verse 12. Go down to verse 12 if you would on that. Let's see here. 10 through 12. 10, 12. Now Israel, let's see, now Israel, what do, there we go. What, what does the Lord require of you? I'm sorry, you're correct. What does the Lord require 
of you, but to fear the Lord your God, walk in all his ways, and love him, and serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul. Did you catch that? To walk in all his ways and to love him, to serve him with all of your heart and your soul, and to keep keep his commandments. That's what it means to fear the Lord. It's a genuine reverence of the Lord. In fact, in that same passage, if you jump down into verse 20, should be verse 20, it describes it as clinging to him, swearing by his name, and making him your praise. Now, while the previous premise, being somebody who served in righteousness, emphasized the king's role in executing justice, this one, ruling in the fear of God, emphasizes his own personal love and devotion. And the two go hand in hand. It wasn't good enough that the king simply be a righteous king who rules with justice. The king had to be somebody who demonstrated his own fear of the Lord, loving the Lord, his whole heart, soul, and mind, focus on the Lord. Why is that? Because he was an example to the people. If you look at the list of kings through First and Second Kings, What's kind of interesting about that is there were very few that did that. There were very few that loved the Lord. And we'll see that in just a second. David's calling was to rule with righteousness and a fear of the Lord. And by doing so, he could bring prosperity to Israel. That's what the Lord's calling on David was. When you ask, why did the Lord appoint David? Why did, he, why did he do this? Well, because he gave him a calling, and that calling was, I need you to lead my people with righteousness and fear. You will be the example. You are my human example, my human representative, Paul Israel. They will see me through you. In the same way that we understand who God is with Christ. Didn't Christ say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's our earthly representative. When we look at him, we can see God the Father. That's the way the king was supposed to be. And so that was David's calling. At the end, when David actually assessed his life, he could confidently say that this was what he had done. He wasn't perfect, obviously. We know that. We've seen that throughout this book. He, but he did take God's word to heart. In fact, the Bible says that he's a man after God's own heart. Numerous occasions it says that David did right in the eyes of the Lord. And here's the reference I mentioned to those kings. There's over 40 kings that ruled over Israel and Judah. 30 of them are specifically said to have done evil. They refer to what we call the bad kings. 30 of them out of 40. Do the math, you kids, how much is that? 75%, right? That's not a good track record. Only four we're told, did right. And that's the exact phrase that's used. You can look that up. You can look for did evil or did right, and you'll see that it lines up with these kings. It's only four of those 40 kings were said to have done right. Now there's another three who were told did right in their youth, but not when they became adults. They fall into the category of bad kings. So now we have not just the 30, but the 33. Now there's one other king, Jehu was his name, J-E-H-U, and it was kind of a mixed bag. He was kind of lukewarm, you know, kind of did right, did wrong, you know, just not very good. And so I guess we could sort of maybe put him in the good, maybe put him in the, uh, he's somewhere in the middle there, but my point is this. David was unique in that he understood the calling, which was to serve God in righteousness and in a fear of the Lord. He understood his calling. And so part of his confidence and his assurance was because he was actually committed to that. Now we know that's true of Christ as well if we look at this as a typing of Christ. Jesus will ultimately serve that way. Jeremiah 23 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, and I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Dustin covered that for us not too long ago. And he will reign as king and act wisely. He'll do justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. 
His name will be called the Lord, our righteousness. And so, again, David's calling reflects ultimately Jesus' calling. And Jesus will ultimately rule in righteousness. Now, how does that relate to us? Well, just like David had a calling that enabled him to focus on, we have a calling too. Do you believe that? David was called to lead Israel in righteousness and fear of the Lord. We have a calling as well. Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 4. Why don't you turn there with me? Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read another chunk here. Ephesians chapter 4. Starting in verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Remember we talk about how when words are repeated, they're important? A calling with which you've been called. I guess it means we've got a calling. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace... There is one body and one spirit, just as also you are called in the hope. Oh, there it is again. Called in the one hope of your calling. There it is again. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one is given the grace, was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives, a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens and so that he might fill all things. Paul kind of got off track there a little bit. Verse 11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Now, what has he just done here? I know it gets a little confusing. But he basically says, you have a calling. And guess what? You've been equipped for that calling. You've been given gifts to fulfill the calling, the purpose that you've been called to. Some are pastors and some are prophets and some are apostles and some are evangelists, some are teachers. He says, for the equipping, verse 12, of the saints, what? For the work of the service to the building up of the body of Christ until what? Till we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the statue which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine to the trickery of men by craftiness and deceitful scheming. You can read the rest of that. What's the point? We have a calling. And the calling is the building up of the body of Christ. It begins with being saved, but from that point on, our calling is to build up the body of Christ. The church. We have the Great Commission make disciples by baptizing and teaching. But we've been equipped and given gifts to serve the body in a way that builds up the body of Christ, which means adding to it numerically, but growing it spiritually as well. So we're a member of this body of Christ, and our job is to do our part in growing that body of Christ through the gifts and abilities that have been given to us. And part of that has to do with our own spiritual growth and maturity, does it not? It's shocking how the church can't grow when its people are not growing. Why do we have a problem here in the United States today with the church shrinking? Because the church is not mature. The church is not growing spiritually. We are the dumbest generation in history when it comes to theology. We were joking in the back here a little while ago. Doesn't it? This great idea. It's a Babylon Bee story. I'm going to submit it to them. I asked him about, you know, when we picked up the mic, I said, hey, can you do that auto-tune thing, make me sound a little bit you know, more intelligent or something? He's, and he thought I was talking about theology. He's like, yeah, we should have like an auto-tune for theology that corrects the theology when somebody gets up and starts teaching stuff that shouldn't be teaching. You just turn it and it corrects it, you know? I just saw an article, literally, I think it was Thursday or Friday, and it was another one of those Barna or um, another studies by LifeWay or somebody on Christians in the United States and what they believe. And it's shocking how little they understand about simple, basic, core tenets of the Scripture. Right down to who Jesus Christ is. And that's 
evangelicals. That's not those on the outside that just wear the label. These are evaluations and studies done with those who come to church on a regular Sunday morning basis and sit there and say, I believe in Jesus Christ. But don't live like it, don't act like it, don't think like it. There's a veneer, as the scriptures call it. I'm going to be real blunt. They're doing nothing for building up the body of Christ. You know, there was a study done by Bill Hybels' church out in, in, um, out in Illinois. When, he, when uh, Robert Schuller came up with the whole seeker-sensitive movement, um, and then Hybels kind of grabbed onto that and, and built Willow Creek and exploded. The church exploded in numbers. Twenty years after that, Hybels and his pastoral staff realized something. They had a lot of people sitting in their pews. But by his own admission, he said, but they're immature. Their knowledge of the scriptures. We, we, and, and by his own words, we didn't make disciples. In other words, we got people saved, but they're ignorant. And part of that is because their model was, we'll, we'll hand over Sunday morning to the unsaved people and, ma- and make it a, an evangelistic service, but then we'll grow Christians, we'll make disciples on Wednesday nights. The problem is, most of them didn't show up. So all they showed up for was Sunday mornings with, with the fantastic music and an evangelistic message that was good for getting saved, but there was nothing there to grow them spiritually. And since the average Christian spends less than 30 minutes in their Bible every week, and that takes place on Sunday mornings, they weren't growing. You see, our mission, our calling, is that we build up the body of Christ. Now here's the thing. Just like David, as he's looking at it and he recognized, my calling is pretty much just one thing. I've got to be a king that serves in righteousness and the fear of the Lord. And if I do that, the Lord is pleased. What does that mean for us? If we focus on our calling, if our goal is to be not just be a member of the body of Christ, but to build up the body of Christ, beginning with my own spiritual growth and maturity so that I'm of value to that body, and as I engage and use my gifts and abilities, the Lord is pleased. Because that's what he called us to. That's why Paul spends a book talking about that and summarizes his theology in the first three chapters in chapter 4 by saying, you have a calling, and you have gifts to fulfill that calling. Now do it. Do you ever notice how most of the New Testament epistles are written to correct issues? Immaturity? You've got the Galatians who fell back into just doing the law instead of relying on faith. You have the Colossians who got all caught up in mysticism. You've got the Corinthians that were all over the place with sexual immorality, suing one another, and even abusing those gifts and using those gifts for their own benefit. Every one of the, most of the New Testament epistles are written to correct maturity issues, to get them to understand you have a calling, and it involves being mature and then becoming this productive member of the body of Christ. That's what pleases the Lord. And so, as we think about our own assurance, if we are focusing on that, then we can see our confidence and our assurance grow. If we're focusing on other things, not so much. Do you really think that someday when you stand before Jesus Christ, he's going to go, how big was that retirement portfolio? Oh, and he'll use scripture to do it, I'm sure. Well, did you bury it or did you invest it? Because if you inv- I'm thrilled that it grew to twice. I think the Lord's probably going to care less. You know? What he's going to care about is, were you a faithful steward? Were you interested in Righteousness? Are you interested in loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are you interested in using your gifts and abilities to grow the kingdom of God? That's where assurance comes from. I'm not talking assurance of salvation. I'm talking about just the ability to stand before him and feel comfortable and go, I was a good servant, much like Paul did at the end of his life. I've finished the course. I've run the race. And so David, as he looked at his calling knew exactly what it was that it enabled him to focus on it. And we'll see in a minute here, there was proof that he had been able to do it. So his third section here comes from verses 5 and 6 of chapter 23. Truly is not my house so with God, 
For he has made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secure for my salvation and my desire. Will he not indeed make it grow? But the worthless, every one of them, will be thrust away like thorns because they cannot be taken in hand. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they will be completely burned with fire in their space. Now, there's some slightly different ways to render this statement that David says here. In the New American Standard... He poses it kind of as a question. Truly is not my house so with God? To paraphrase what David is actually saying there, he's basically saying this. Have I not ruled this way? It's a rhetorical question. Now, some versions like the King James kind of pose it in the opposite. Um, My house is not this way. Or, although my house isn't like this. But that's not what the language generally communicates here. And most English translations do a better job of that. But it's really a rhetorical question. He's basically saying, the Lord told me to rule in righteousness and the fear of the Lord. And then he says, haven't I done that? It's a rhetorical question that deserves an answer of yes, I've done that. And what he does here is he now gives us the proof of that. I love the way the NIV says it. The NIV reads this way in chapter five, or verse 5. If my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant. Arranged and secured in every part, surely he would not bring to fruition my salvation, or better way to translate that is my deliverance, my rescue. And he certainly would not have granted me my every desire. Did you catch that? David basically is saying, why would the Lord make an everlasting covenant with me unless he was convinced that I would rule over Israel faithfully. Why would the Lord make this covenant? Why would he bring about continually for me my deliverance and my rescue if the Lord was not pleased with me? Now we know that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Turn there with me. 2 Samuel chapter 7. I want you to see something. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 8. Maybe I got this one right. If not, Sandy, you can find it for me. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be the ruler over my people, people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut out or cut off all of your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as they formerly have. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies, the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. What's the Lord just said to David there? All these promises, these blessings that he promised David there, but you notice that he speaks as if it's all past tense. Why? Because the Lord was pleased with David. Now, David was not a perfect man by no stretch of the imagination. We know he had his faults. In fact, a pretty severe one in Bathsheba and Uriah. But we also saw how David responded to that, which was exactly the way God expects us to respond when we sin. So David basically says that the proof that I've done what God has said I was supposed to do, which is to rule in righteousness and to to live in fear of the Lord, the proof of that is how God has responded to me when I've done that. He says, it's not that way with the wicked, though, and that's the second half of this proof. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, but the worthless, every one of them is going to be thrust away like thorns. He says they, they can't be taken in hand. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and a shaft of his spear, and they will be completely burned with fire. In their the picture he gives her is an amazing word picture. He basically says that the, the wicked are like thorns. You can't just reach in and grab them. What happens? We used to have this thing, this plant, if you want to call it that. I think it was right from the Garden of Eden after it fell. But it was right at the gate that I would come out of with my, my riding lawnmower. And um, when we first bought the house, man, I, I was getting a flat tire a couple of times a summer. And you know, it's got these little tiny tires, you've got to pull it off, you've got to take it in, find somebody that even does those things. It was a major pain. And finally, it kind of dawned on me, you know, it's got to be that plant. Well, it had these 
thorn things on it that were about that thick. And so I went and I tore that out. And I, man, even with gloves on, I had a hard time pulling those branches out because that's exactly what David describes. Wicked people are just like that. You can't even reach in and grab them unless you put on iron gloves. And he said, they're just tossed away and burned away in the fire. So the picture he gives is this. The Lord blesses those that he's pleased with. Not so much with the wicked. And you can look at their lives and you can tell sometimes. And David basically says, look at my life. Look at what the the Lord made a covenant with me that is an everlasting covenant. He has trusted me to not just rule over Israel as a righteous, God-fearing king, but ultimately, it's an eternal covenant. The Messiah is going to come from my lineage here. That's not just an insignificant thing. The Lord must must have known something that he would be willing, he knew how I would serve because he would not have made that covenant with me. But then he also says, but why else would he have continued to deliver me? He didn't do that with Saul, did he? Saul paid the price in the end. But David says, the Lord has continually delivered me. Not only that, he's given me the desires of my heart. Why would the Lord do that if he wasn't pleased with me? Now, what does that mean for us? You know, last week we saw in the other psalm that David wrote, that David thanked and praised the Lord for blessing him for his obedience and his righteousness. And we struggle with that sometimes because we think nothing is earned, and that's not true. We don't earn our salvation. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. But there's a lot you can do to earn God's favor after that. Because the scriptures tell us, the whole Sermon on the Mount was what? Don't do anything. Just sit back. I'll bless you just because you're my children now. No, it was the blessings that come from obedience. Blessed is the man who... And so we saw how David last week thanked the Lord for blessing him for his righteousness. That is a biblical principle that that we can earn the Lord's favor, if you will, blessings by living like he wants us to live. And again, that's something we struggle with, but ask yourself this with your own kids. Are there things your kids can do that endear your heart even more to them? Absolutely. You love them regardless, right? But we still encourage them to be the right kind of people. You know, I have this conversation with my daughters about the way people see you endears them to you. And so behave in a way that endears them to you. Be good to them. Be righteous. Be gracious. You'll have a lot more friends. So like David, when we see the Lord's blessings in our life, when we can honestly look back and see what God has done, the ways that he's blessed us, the way that he's been with us, the way that he's helped us, helps encourage assurance and confidence, does it not? First Timothy chapter 6, Paul also wrote this to Timothy. He says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. They're not focused on their calling, are they? But on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Catch that? The Lord richly supplies us with things to enjoy. Instruct them to be good, or to to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves treasures of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. What's the point there? What Paul basically is saying there is that the Lord richly blesses us. Jesus promised us not just eternal life, but an abundant life. And it's not something that's only reserved for after we die. Now, it doesn't mean that life is always going to be good. It doesn't mean some won't be martyred for their faith. But we can look back and we can see the Lord's work in our lives, how he's blessed us, how he's been with us. And that in itself ought to give us a certain amount of assurance and confidence. And it certainly did for David. So what do we see? We see here three things. We see with with David that his assurance and his confidence in standing before the Lord and feeling comfortable before him. And again, we're not talking about eternal salvation. We're talking about just 
someday we're going to see Christ. And are we going to be able to do it like Paul? Man, I've run a good race. I've finished the course. Paul was confident as he was going to stand before Christ, not just because he knew his salvation was secure, but he knew that he'd be able to be standing before Christ and know that Christ was pleased with how he had invested his life. And so for David, we see that in this psalm because he's able to say, look, this is the calling the Lord gave me, and look at how the, what the Lord has done. And you can see David ooze confidence here in that. And again, when does this take place? It's the last words of David. It's likely the very end of his life. And his confidence, I think, was grounded in those three things we discussed. The first is he had this divine appointment. Okay? He knew the Lord had appointed him to that specifically. You know, I think, I don't know if it's you or somebody else before, said, stay in your lane, you know, that idea, stay in your lane. You know, no, God appointed you to this. Well, we've been appointed as well. We've seen that God has appointed us to salvation in Christ. He called us before the foundation of the world. And so the beginning of our confidence standing before him starts there. He called me for something, or he, he appointed me to something. He appointed me, we're told, in Ephesians, or Ephesians chapter 1 there, not just to life, but to bear fruit. Jesus told his disciples, I've appointed you to bear fruit. That's where it begins. But then we've also been given a calling within that. And our calling is to be a productive member of the body of Christ, honoring him in righteousness and love and grace, building up that body, starting with our own maturity in Christ, growing in that relationship with Christ, that we might be a productive member of this body of Christ to grow it to his glory. And so, as we focus on that, we can say, you know what, Lord, I focused on that calling. I did what you called me to do. Confidence and assurance comes from that. The reason I'm convinced my bosses at work are satisfied with my work is because I do what I was hired to do. So when I do other things... (laughs) I'd have to face him saying, but you're not doing what I hired you for. Stay in my lane. Stay in my lane. Know my calling. That's where assurance and confidence comes from. But then lastly, I think we we go from there to say, how has the Lord blessed that? Um, I have had a tremendous privilege of serving in the role that I'm serving in here. I was reflecting on this the other day. I have no idea how I ended up at seminary. You know? I mean, I wanted to go, but it's just weird to think about how God worked all that out. But... um, God has really blessed me tremendously. I've seen what he's done through me and in me. Um, I think I benefit more from this than people sitting there oftentimes. Um, and I see what God has done with that. And I tell you, that gives me a certain amount of confidence because I think as I face Christ, not in arrogance or proudness or pride, but I'm able to, I'll be able to say, you know, Lord, that was my first love. I love doing IT work, but man, I, I love this. I love teaching. Um, I see how God has used that. And that gives assurance and confidence, much like David could say, I've seen what God has done with me as king. And I can see exactly what the Lord promised me. Remember, the Lord said, if you serve them as righteous king, if you serve them as as an individual fears the Lord, then Israel will grow and prosper. And David could see that happen under his reign.